But we're continuing in our study in Philippians, struggling well, the joy of the Christian journey. This is our next to last message. Next Sunday will be the last message in this series. As I've so enjoyed uh, our time in this small letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, it was of more than a passing interest to me uh, in the process of struggling well in these last few months that we have looked at it. You know, every person these days feels embattled. Um, One example of that, just the other day, Carol and I were visiting with one of the medical people that she's working, uh, is, is dealing with, and this person opened up her heart to us. Uh, she shared a little bit of her personal challenges and her journey as a single mom who had been uh, abused and some of the challenges she has in raising her uh, child. Uh, it seems to me that if we will just take the time to listen, we will hear people's stories of how embattled they are. And if we took the time to hear one another's stories, we would feel that same sense. Uh, Frederick Boykner, in his book, Secrets in the Dark, A Life in Sermons, says this, there are none of us who do not one way or another wage war every day, if only with ourselves. It is a time to look back at our own searches for peace because deep beneath the level of all the other things we spend our time searching for, peace, real peace is the treasure for which maybe we would all of us be willing to trade every other treasure we have. As we lie there in the dark, we might ask ourselves, what battles, if any, are we winning? What battles are we losing? What battles might we better be do, uh, what battles might we do better not to be fighting at all? And which, in place of surrender, should we be fighting more effectively and bravely? Those are all great questions, right? What battles are we winning? What battles are we losing? What battles maybe we're fighting that we shouldn't be fighting at all? And what battles have we surrendered that we shouldn't have surrendered? It's a, it's a challenging time. So I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Philippians 4, 8 and 9, we will look at what we need to think about in order to struggle well, and then what we need to do in order to struggle well, and then we will see the promise from God. Philippians 4, 8 and 9, let's stand for the reading of Scripture this morning. Finally, brothers, whatever is true whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Please have a seat. Well, let's look first at this question, what do we need to think about in order to struggle well? It's my contention that Christians 
today have a huge lack of discernment. Uh, Perhaps as never before, Christians have a failure to be able to discern truth from error, good from bad, etc. We've got several issues that are making it hard for us to have discernment. One is, we lay huge importance to things that are of little eternal consequence. We, We make them out to be big, huge, massive things, and they are of little eternal consequence. Secondly, we think hardly at all upon those matters that are of eternal consequence. We we give very little thought, contemplation, dwelling upon things that are of eternal consequence. Thirdly, we twist and distort the Scriptures to justify ourselves. We have a determined direction we want to go. And then we will search the Scriptures in order to justify that direction. That will mess up our discernment. Fourthly, we fail even to look at the Scriptures. Quite often we're responding simply out of emotion or our political philosophy or what is popular in our own peer group, whatever peer group that might be. Wherever our friends are thinking, we kind of go along with the flow there. And lastly, we have a lack of discernment because we imagine that whatever appears successful must be right. Whatever appears successful must be right. For all of these reasons, we have a hard time in the middle of these embattled days of having a discernment to know, well, what should I think about and how should I respond? It creates in us an anxiety. We don't know what to do. We don't know what to think. In fact, the things that we think about are problematic, aren't they? In this embattled nature of our world, It's very easy for us. In fact, I think it's true. Literally everyone thinks that they are at war with everything. (laughs) That's a tough, tough road to go, isn't it? Um, Again, Boykner from this same book, Secrets in the Dark. There are the wars that go on within families, within marriages. The wars we wage with each other, sometimes openly but more often so hiddenly that even in the thick of them, we're hardly aware of what we are doing. There are the wars that go on between parents and children, between people who at one level are friends, but at another level are adversaries, competitors, strangers even, with a terrible capacity for wounding each other and being wounded by each other, no less deeply and painfully because the wounds are invisible, and the bleeding mostly internal. Sometimes we fight to survive, sometimes to be noticed, let alone to be loved, sniping and skirmishing, defensive maneuvers, naked aggressions, and guerrilla subversions are part of the lives of all of us. And then he adds this, if only we could see that the people we are one way or another at war with are more often than not 
less to blame for the bad blood between us than we are. Because again, more often than not, the very faults we find so unbearable in them are apt to be versions of the same faults that we are more or less blind to in ourselves. Boykner's saying if you're feeling embattled and at war, maybe the bigger problem is not the person that you perceive as your adversary. Maybe it's time for a look in the mirror. What can we do to struggle well in this embattled world? Paul offers here six virtues for our contemplation. We need to think about these things rather than how we will respond in the next battle. So often we're in an embattled world, we're just thinking about getting ready for the next battle and loaded for bear, ready to go at it. Paul says, no, think about these things rather than think about how to respond in the next battle. The word that Paul uses here at the end of verse 8, where he says, think about these things, is not the typical word that he's used here in Philippians. It means to think about, consider, ponder, let one's mind dwell upon. The only other time it appears in the letter is back in chapter 3, verse 13, where he says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. That is, he's not pondering or dwelling upon or thinking that he has arrived. Now he's telling us what we ought to consider and dwell upon and think about and ponder. And he gives six virtues. These are not intended to be contrasted with one another as though they are in opposition. That is, something is true, can't also be honorable or just or the others. Rather, these six are working in a complementary way, virtue friends that complement and build on one another. It's not enough to like one of these virtues. That would place them in opposition. No, we must hold them all, dwell upon them all, ponder them all, embrace them all. So let's dive into it. Whatever is true, This is always the place to begin, isn't it? For if something is not true, it's not worth dwelling upon. So much of what we dwell upon are possibilities, potentialities, what might happen, good or bad. We dwell upon things that we think are true but aren't. We dwell upon things that might be true. We dwell upon things that could be true. To struggle well means that we begin by dwelling upon verities, things that we know are true. That means that we must inquire of God and use our best faculties to discern true from untrue. And in a world that is telling us there's no way you can know what's true, (laughs) that enterprise is made even more difficult. Paul himself identifies true and false motives among proclaimers of the gospel back in chapter 118. What then only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So there is a, a sense in which there's items that are true, but for Paul, dwelling upon whatever is true doesn't just mean in the sense that all truth is God's truth, even though that's true. 
Paul is especially concerned that we dwell upon the nature of God. Romans 1.18, Romans 1.25 tell us that these dwelling upon the nature of God is true. Paul is concerned also that we dwell upon the truth of the gospel. Galatians 2.5, Galatians 5.7 all reveal that for Paul, dwelling on what is true means dwelling upon the nature of God and the truth of the gospel. The first place of drifting away in our struggles, the first place where we start to drift, where we don't struggle well, but in fact struggle with pain and difficulty, first place is when we start to believe lies about God and when we suppress the truth about God in our minds. When we tell each other lies about God, like He did not give us His Word, once you start to doubt the Word of God, all bets are off in dwelling on what's true. When we believe lies like God is uncaring, or we believe a lie like, he, like God is weak, or when we believe the lie that He's asking too much of us when He calls us into relationship with Him and to obey Him. We suppress the truth about God when we think He's not holy or that He will not judge sin. To dwell and ponder upon whatever is true means that we dwell upon the nature of God and the glory and beauty of the gospel. Second, whatever is honorable. This has a sense of the sacred or majestic, what is worthy of our respectful contemplation. We turn away from everything that is vulgar and dishonorable. And by the way, when you turn away from everything that is vulgar and dishonorable, that will change how you use your phone. It's going to change it. Dwell upon, contemplate the things that are lofty, that are awe-inspiring, majestic, refusing to dwell upon the cheap and the tasteless. Paul wrote in his pastoral epistles that deacons, women, and older men should be, and he uses this word, honorable. It should go without saying that when we spend hours on entertainment that is lacking in things worthy of respectful contemplation, we are actually constructing inside of us a moral house that will hurt our ability to struggle well. And when we cast about for opportunity to fill a hole in our hearts with things as obviously evil as pornography or more subtly dishonorable as social media debate, we are building our souls in such a way as to guarantee that we will struggle poorly. There is much to be said when we think about this phrase, whatever is honorable. There is much to be said for getting out into God's creation. The first half of Psalm 19, looking at the world God has made. Did you, as you were shoveling out your tons of snow, take a moment to lift up your head and see its beauty? to ponder 
the glory of God. The fact that we don't have cockroaches that are eight inches long because God sends us below zero weather. Whatever is honorable means that we should think about the world God has made and to thank him for his blessings and his goodness. But there is even more to be said for a gaze at the Gospels and the rest of the Scriptures to see the majesty of Jesus Christ, to think upon him, to know him, to thank him for who he is, to see his encounters with people and to say, what a Savior. The third item Paul mentions is whatever is just. Here's a deep theological word. It's the word dikaios. It carries us further than we might anticipate. At first glance, it appears that Paul is simply saying that we should contemplate and dwell upon things that are morally right. And to be sure, Paul uses that sense of the word even in Philippians 1.7 where he says, it is right, it is dikaios for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Paul tells masters to give their slaves what is dikaios, what is just in Colossians 4.1. And we ought to care about things that are morally right, that are just. We did that last week, for example, as we looked at the sanctity of human life. And there are all kinds of things that are unjust in this world that we should bring to the light of what is just. But this word goes deeper than that. It is a reminder to us that we are not in ourselves dikaios. We are not in ourselves just or right. And in this day, where literally 100% of the world's population are experts in epidemiology. <laughs> Some of you aren't listening. That was funny. 100% of the world population are experts in epidemiology. It might require a little humility to say, I might not be right. As Christians, we know we're not right in the sense of righteous. There is no one dikaios, no one righteous, not even one. That verse in Romans 3.10 uses the same word, and there Paul's quoting Psalm 14.3, which uses the same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's in this sense also that we looked at last week. We looked at it last week as we heard from those who had post-abortion trauma tell their stories of freedom and forgiveness and how they were made dikaios, how they were made right, not by their own efforts, but by the purchased blood of Jesus at the cross. Because Jesus is dikaios, because he is just and righteous, because he clothes us in his justice and righteousness, we are free and forgiven. Now that's something worth thinking about. Do you spend time dwelling on your past sins? May I encourage you to begin anew 
by dwelling upon the rightness, the righteousness of Jesus. He is dikaios for you. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure now, this word was used to describe the sacred items and actions in temple worship. So it came to have a moral sense of holiness and purity. Most of us know that purity begins with our thoughts. Uh, If we have impure thoughts, we're going to have impure actions. So the old uh, saw, sow a thought, reap an action, sow an action, reap a habit, sow a habit, reap a destiny. And in the context of life where Paul was writing to a colony, a Roman colony at Philippi, thinking about what was pure in a Roman colony was a constant press against the grain. Everything about Roman life was pushing them toward the impure. And Paul is saying, live counterculturally. Think about the pure. Paul had told Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, keep yourself pure. He admonishes younger women in Titus 2.5 that they are to be self-controlled and pure. And purity here is not a prudish legalism. Rather, it is a battle in the mind pushing against the three forces that are arrayed against us. The world system that is attempting to squeeze us into its mold, our own sinful flesh and desires that we have that are wrong, and the devil and his minions seeking to destroy us. You know, in physical conditioning, There's a lot that's said these days about strengthening your core. Um, Don't look at my core while you're uh, hearing this sermon. But surround yourself with people and stories that strengthen your core. Then you will almost instinctively turn away from the impure and run to the pure. But if you surround yourself with coarse people and coarse stories, your conscience will get twisted into thinking that the impure is not all that bad. In fact, you'll start to think that the impure is actually good. Now, this does not mean a retreat from the world or a retreat from even engagement with people who are impure. But we should do so from a, from a mindset and from a worldview and from a strength of our core that enables us to speak into our culture prophetically rather than looking at the culture and going, oh, I kind of like that. Just one little example here. Um, just about everybody I've ever encountered who has dealt with uh, alcoholism or drug abuse has come into a world in which virtually their entire friend network are engaged in such activities. And in doing so, they start to think, well, there isn't any other world out there. I had a um, very close friend of mine who literally asked me the question, is there anybody that doesn't use drugs? He honestly did not think that there was anybody who didn't. 
because that was his entire world. So strengthening our core, surrounding ourselves with people and stories that will strengthen our core will help us to turn away from the impure. But the greatest sense that Paul is using this word is to dwell upon the purity of Jesus Christ, tempted in all points as we, yet without sin, to contemplate his purity as truly God come in the flesh is a remarkable privilege and joy. Let us look at him. We come now to the fifth item that Paul tells us to think about, whatever is lovely. This has to do with beauty. In 1740, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon to the children of his congregation. The theme was the beauty of Jesus Christ. The beauty of Jesus Christ. Here's what he said. There is no love so great and so wonderful as that which is in the heart of Christ. Dane Ortland in his wonderful book, uh, Gentle and Lowly, says, about this sermon, human beings are created with a built-in pull toward beauty. We're arrested by it. Edwards understood this deeply and saw this magnetic pull toward beauty also occurs in spiritual things. In fact, Edwards would say that it is spiritual beauty of which every other beauty is just a shadow or echo. Throughout his ministry, Edwards sought to woo people to the beauty of Christ. And that is what he was doing with the kids in his church in August of 1740. Later in that sermon, Edwards remarks, everything that is lovely in God is in Christ, and everything that is or can be lovely in any man is in him. For he is man as well as God, and he is the holiest, meekest, most humble, and every way the most excellent man that ever was. That guy could preach. Ortland comments, any possible loveliness is in Jesus. This language of Christ's meekness and humility, the very way Christ himself describes his own heart. What is it that pulls us in and draws us to conquer our sins and make us radiant people? Is it the sheer size of God? the consideration of the immensity of the universe and thus of the creator, a sense of God's transcendent greatness that pulls us toward him? No, Edwards would say, it is the loveliness of his heart. It is, as Edwards says, a sight of the divine beauty of Christ that bows the wills and draws the hearts of men a sight of the greatness of God in his attributes may overwhelm men. And so we, we think about what is lovely. We need to train our minds to have the right view of beauty. We need to train our children along this line as well. But the key place for that, for the Christian, is the beautiful heart of Jesus Christ for sinners. Last one, whatever is commendable, uh, it's a word used only here in the New Testament, whatever is admirable or good-sounding, not in the sense that it sounds good but isn't, but rather it's good-sounding because it is good. 
Uh, it reminds me a little bit of George MacDonald and the story that was told of an encounter, he was, a conversation he had with his son. His son asked him one day about Jesus and the gospel as he understood the fact that, all, that Jesus paid for all of our sins and we simply repent of our sins and ask Jesus to forgive us by what he did at the cross and he forgives us and gives us eternal life and relationship with him forever. George MacDonald's son, it said, it seems too good to be true. And MacDonald replied, nay, laddie, tis so good, it must be true. To dwell upon the things that are commendable. Now, it might be interesting for you to know that these six virtues are mostly listed in Greek literature that's secular, and that schoolboys were taught to value these virtues. We might ask, why is Paul using this same language here? Well, it's not because he wants us to be good Greek schoolboys. It is not because he thinks that these virtues, as the Greeks understood them, are the way to salvation and soul thriving. No, he uses these terms in a redemptive sense. That is, he takes their terms and he redeems them and he infuses them with a Christ-centered, gospel-oriented meaning. And so I ask you, what are your thoughts throughout the day? That will go a long way in being able to struggle well. Now, you might ask the question, well, how do I go about figuring out how to identify that, these, that I'm thinking about these six things? I'm glad you asked, because Paul gives two ways for us to figure it out. Do you see them there in verse 8? The first way is if there is any excellence. That is, if there's any virtue in it, any moral excellence, looking for the ways that these six ways of thinking can bring moral excellence. But I would say even more important is the second item. If there is anything worthy of praise, it is just here that our focus as a church comes into play, seeking to be worshipers, maturing in Christ. This is not just saying that if something is good enough to produce a compliment, think about that. You know, if it's praiseworthy, uh, oh yeah, well, that was nice. That's not what he's talking about. It's saying that all of life is a worship service. And the key way to figure out what is true or honorable or just or pure or lovely or commendable is to always and even instinctively ask the question, how is this thought producing praise in me? How is this thought making me a better worshiper? If anything has moral excellence, if anything is so praiseworthy that it produces worship in me, that's the grid for sorting out what things are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable. So all of that is what we need to think about in order to struggle well. Now, what do we need to do in order to struggle well? Let's look at the beginning of verse 9. 
Paul gives four ways to observe his life. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. It's a something to do. So, let's look at these four ways in which we are to look at Paul's life. Paul says there's four ways you can observe my life. One is what you've learned. That has to do with the discipleship and teaching that's been comprehended. Paul had taught them, and they had understood what he had taught. Whatever it is you've learned from me. Secondly, what you have received from me. This is slightly different. It's one thing to understand what a person is teaching. It's another thing to accept it. It's another thing to embrace it. Paul says, don't just understand what I'm saying. That's learning. But what you have received in me, accepted as good and real and true. What you have heard in me. In the Bible, when the, word, when the Bible uses the word hear, it's not just about what you can auditorily comprehend. It is about hearing for the purpose of putting into practice. So what you have learned and as a disciple, what you have received, accepted, what you have heard with the goal of putting into practice, and what you have seen, the personal aspect of seeing what Paul taught being lived out. He commends all this back in chapter 3, verse 17, when he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He just goes into greater detail here in verse 9 of chapter 4. What you've learned, received, heard, seen in me, put it into practice. Make it real. Don't just theorize it. Live it. There are So many Christians who can pass the Bible quiz but fail at life. And Paul says, don't just theorize this. Live it out. And now we come to the promise. What promise do we have in thinking and behaving rightly? There's a promise here. It says, the God of peace will be with you. Now, lots of people get this confused with verse 7 because it talks in verse 7 about the peace of God. It's slightly different here, isn't it? In verse 7, it says that when we make our requests to God, not being anxious about anything, the peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds. But here, he doesn't say the peace of God. He says the God of peace. It isn't just that peace comes to us. It is that God is with us. That's a dimension of relationship far deeper we saw the peace of God in verse 7. Now we have the God of peace. He will be with you. This is a theme that the Bible does not weary of. One time, back in the days of dot matrix printers, I printed out every verse in the Bible that described God being with us. And it was, you know, the whole holes all the way down. It was a stack of paper like this. All the, all the places in the Bible of God being with. Let, let me take you on a little journey here. Um, 
Genesis 26.3, God says to Isaac, sojourn in this land and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your offspring, I'll give all these lands. I'll establish the oath I swore to Abraham, your father. I will be with you. Uh, Genesis 31.3, to Jacob, then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I will be with you. Moses, at the burning bush, Moses goes, no, no, I'm not, I don't want to go. But I, God says, I will be with you. Moses dies and Joshua takes his place. Deuteronomy 31, the Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, be strong and courageous for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. And you get the idea that Joshua maybe doubts that or God needs to reemphasize it because in Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Joshua 3, 7, the Lord says to Joshua, I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know that as I was with Moses, I will be with you. Gideon, hiding from the Midianites. And the Lord says to him, hail, mighty warrior. And he's like, who? Who's that? You know. And the Lord says to Gideon, but I will be with you and you will strike the Midianites. 1 Kings 11, if you listen to all I command you and walk in my ways, do what's right in my eyes, as David my servant did, I will be with you and build you a sure house. Isaiah 43, 2, when you pass through the waters, when you struggle, I will be with you. Isaiah 41, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. Isaiah 43, 5, fear not, for I am with you. Jeremiah 1, 8, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. Jeremiah 1, 19, they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. Jeremiah 15, 20, I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you, for I am with you with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 30, 11, I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. Haggai 1, 13, Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And Jesus comes, the king. You are to call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus raises for, is risen from the dead. He gives a commission. Go. Make disciples of the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and surely I am with you always to the end of the age. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. We live in an embattled time, my friends. Perhaps unique in human history. There's one way to struggle well. With our thoughts on Christ. 
and not just in theory, but in really living it out, knowing that the God of peace is with us. Let's pray. Now, Father, we, we humbly ask, as we look at this, we ask for forgiveness. We have thought so shallowly. There have been moments where we think about things we shouldn't. There have been times where we haven't put into practice the things that we know. Forgive us. And now, help us, Lord, to reorient our thinking, to reorient our practice in such a way that we would experience the God of peace with us every step of the way. Help us not to think that we've got all the answers, but help us to think about things that are true and honorable and just, pure, lovely, commendable. Help us to put through the grid of the things that come in our mind. Is there any excellence here? Is there anything that creates in me a heart of worship, a greater heart of worship? To think about those things. And then to take the things that we have learned and received and heard and seen and practice those things. That we may know that the God of peace is with us. Now, for those, Lord, who've never put their faith in Jesus, I pray that they would see, even in these words, an opportunity for them to have the God of peace with them by having peace with God through Jesus Christ. To say, Lord Jesus, I, <clears throat> I'm a sinner. I haven't anything I can bring to the table that would justify myself I am not just, but I know that Jesus is the just one who died for me. I ask that you would forgive me of my sin by what he did at that cross, that I may be clothed in his righteousness and have freedom and forgiveness of sins and an eternal life of relationship with you forever. Lord, make these things real to us. In this next week, when we come up against hard things, where we feel embattled, remind us of these verses in your word, that we may be changed. In Jesus' name, amen.